0: You are about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. Oh, ye un- unhappy perpetrators of this horrid wickedness, reflect a moment on the mischief ye have done, the disgrace ye have o- brought on your country, on your religion, and your Bible on your families and children. Think on the destruction of your captivated country folk, now among the wild Indians, which may probably follow, in resentment of your barbarity. Think on the wrath of the United Five Nations, hitherto our friends, but now provoked by your murdering one of their tribes, in danger of becoming our bitter enemies. Think of the mild and good government you have so audaciously installed The laws of your king, your country, and your god that you have broken. The infamous death that hangs over your heads. For justice, though slow, will come at last. All good people everywhere detest your actions. You have imbrued your hands in innocent blood. How will you make them clean? The dying shrieks and groans of the murdered will often sound in your ears. Their specters will sometimes attend you and affright even your innocent children. Fly where you will, your consciences will go with you. Talking in your sleep shall betray you. In the delirium of a fever, you yourselves shall make your own wickedness known. Benjamin Franklin, 1764 This is Episode 38, The Paxton Boys. 1763 was an eventful year in the eastern United States. The border dispute which had led Maryland and Pennsylvania to armed conflict, known as Cressop's War, had been quelled and compromise on the border had been reached. Surveys of the eventual border, which became known as the Mason-Dixon Line, had begun in that year. More significantly and importantly to the following story, the French and Indian War had just ended in the favor of Great Britain. Commander in chief of the British Army, Lieutenant General Geoffrey Amherst, along with Brigadier General James Murray and Brigadier General William Haviland, had captured Montreal on September 8, 1760, leading to the conclusion of the French and Indian War three years later. Various Native American tribes living in territories once ruled by the French and which had been allied with the French during the war were suddenly painfully aware that it was now the British who occupied the forts throughout the region. More so than the French, the British, in particular General Amherst, and Major Henry Gladwin, the commander of Fort Detroit, were notably contemptuous of Native Americans. Amherst cut back on gifts to Native Americans, and then strictly limited access to firearms. Rumors had begun circulating as early as seventeen sixty one, that some natives belonging to the Mingo tribe of what is now Ohio, under the leadership of chiefs named Gaiasuda and Tehaya were planning an attack, as were several other tribes throughout present-day Michigan and Illinois. Peace was achieved temporarily in September of that year, but in 1763 the Treaty of Paris was signed, and with the formal end of the war, the lands of those tribes were formally ceded to the British. This led to what is known as Pontiac's Rebellion, named after a prominent chief of the Ottawa tribe. A detailed description of the rebellion isn't necessary, although it should be noted that it was during this conflict that Amherst heard of the outbreak of smallpox at Fort Pitt, formerly Fort Duquesne, which is present-day Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and wrote to Colonel Henry Bouquet, of the possibility of using the disease against the besieging Native Americans. Bouquet wrote back to Amherst, I will try to inoculate the Indians by means of blankets that may fall into their hands. Taking care, however, not to get the disease myself, as it is a pity to oppose good men against them, I wish we could make use of the Spaniards' method and hunt them with English dogs, supported by rangers, who I think would effectively extirpate or remove that vermin. Unbelievably, Amherst wrote that, I should be very glad your scheme for hunting them down by dogs could take effect, but England is at too great a distance to think of that at present. The use of smallpox as a biological weapon did indeed take place, although it seems it might not have been quite so widespread a practice as is usually made out, being used, as far as I can tell, mostly at Fort Pitt. Shortly after this, Geoffrey Amherst was summoned back to England. He was temporarily replaced as commander-in-chief by General Thomas Gage, and instead of receiving accolades for his conquest of Quebec, he was put on the hot seat, as it were, and forced to defend his actions during the rebellion. Several officials and traders lobbied to have Amherst removed permanently and replaced by General Gage. This happened... And though Jeffrey Amherst was not reprimanded to the extent that he probably should have been, he never again served in the New World. All of this is backdrop for today's story. The village of Paxton or Paxtang, in the vicinity of what is now Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, was settled mainly by Scotch-Irish immigrants. On March 29, 1757, 11 people had been killed by Native Americans there. Which tribe they were from, I'm not certain, but as most of the attacks in Pennsylvania were carried out by Lenape or Shawnee, it was likely one of those. This was a development which caused John Elder, the pastor of Paxton Presbyterian Church, to carry a musket to church with him. He also began to implore his congregation to arm themselves. He organized a militia group called the Paxton Rangers to help defend the town. On September 30th, 1763, he wrote a letter to Deputy Governor James Hamilton, a letter which, in my opinion, began to set the following events in motion. Our troops would gladly join the volunteers if it's agreeable to your honor, and as that favor, they imagine, has been granted to troops on other side of the Susquehanna, they flatter themselves it will not be refused these two companies. Their principal view is to destroy the immense quantities of corn left by the New England men at Wyoming, which, if not consumed, will be a considerable magazine to the enemy and enable them, with more ease, to distress the inhabitants. The New Englanders, Reverend Elder refers to, were nearly a hundred settlers from Connecticut who had established farms at several places throughout what is now the Wilkes-Barre-Scranton metropolitan area. On October 15, 1763, these settlers were attacked, and nearly 20 of them were slain by a band of over 125 Native Americans, believed to have been a combined combined band of Senecas and Mohawks that had previously murdered a Lenape chief in the same valley. Led by Reverend Elder, now a colonel, the newly formed Paxton Rangers joined a party of soldiers led by Major Asher Clayton that were bound for the Wyoming Valley, and as was written later, "...our party under Major Clayton has returned from Wyoming, where we met with no Indians but found the New Englanders, who had been killed and scalped a day before we got there. We buried the dead, nine men and a woman, who had been most cruelly butchered. The woman was roasted and had two hinges in her hands, supposed to be put in red hot." and several of the men had awls thrust in their eyes and spears, arrows, pitchforks, etc. sticking in their bodies. They burnt what houses the Indians had left and destroyed a quantity of Indian corn. The enemy's tracks were up the river toward Wyalusing. The disputes between Pennsylvania and Connecticut led to a wider conflict, the 2 Pennamite Penhamite-Yankee wars, but the quote-unquote wars were actually only minor conflicts. With only a small handful of fatalities reported. While making this trip to northern Pennsylvania, a group of Paxton Rangers were detached from the rest of the unit. Whether this was accidental or whether this was the splinter group that would in the coming months become so infamous isn't known. But this group met up with three Indians returning home from a trading mission to Bethlehem. And although they were unarmed, or at least not a threat to the Rangers, They were all three slaughtered and scalped in mockery of how kills were counted. Shortly after their return from the Wyoming Valley, the Paxton Rangers began began becoming radicalized, essentially. The anti-Native American rhetoric began began increasing in virulence. They began advocating not only defense, but offense, carrying out attacks on the villages in the area. Reverend Elder no longer had real control over his unit, And seeing their increasing rage, he wrote letters to various officials trying to get local tribes removed for their safety. He struggled with other members of the Rangers, entreating them to desist from such an undertaking, representing to them to desist from such an undertaking, representing to them the unlawfulness and barbarity of such an action, that it's cruel and unchristian in its nature, and would be fatal in its consequences to themselves and families. In addition to native to the Native Americans themselves, the Paxton Boys, the more radical group is often referred to by this name, presumably to differentiate them from the military unit from which they sprang, also began to take issue with the Quaker government of Pennsylvania, feeling they unnecessarily shielded perpetrators of tribal massacres from retribution. On December 13th, 1763, a cadre of the Rangers under Matthew Smith swept south through Lancaster County. Francis Parkman, writing in his Conspiracy of Pontiac and the Indian Wars after the conquest of Canada, says that Reverend Elder attempted to dissuade his former troops from this undertaking. He mounted his horse, overtook them, and addressed them with a most earnest remonstrance. Finding his words unheeded, he drew up his horse across the narrow road in front and charged them on his authority as their pastor, to return. Upon this, Matthew Smith rode forward and, pointing his rifle at the breast of Elder's horse, threatened to fire unless he, unless he drew aside, and gave room to pass. The clergyman was forced to comply, and the party proceeded. They continued south to the village of Conestoga Town. This, by the way, is not the currently extant town by that name, but was approximately four miles west of there. The village was built on attractive land, granted to the Susquehannock tribe, more specifically to the Conestoga subtribe. Initially, William Penn had given the Susquehannocks nearly 3,000 acres of land, but as Pennsylvania became more densely populated, his sons had whittled the Indians' grant down to only 400 acres. By the time the Paxton boys, boys visited the town, the tribe was still called the Conestogas, although by this time, The band included several individuals from various other tribes. Most of the inhabitants of Conestoga were absent from the village on various trading missions. Present in the village were six people, among them an old man named Shehays, who it was believed had been present when William Penn originally gave the Susquehannocks the land in 1701. Some townspeople in the nearby town of Wrights Ferry, modern Columbia, saw the saw the course that the events were taking, and told Shihez that they were worried about his safety. It is impossible, he said. The English will wrap me in their matchcoat and protect me from all danger. Early on the morning of December 14th, the party that had left from Paxton the day previous swept into the village, mercilessly slaughtering all the inhabitants. Not only did these men slaughter six elderly people and children, but they had slaughtered six sleeping ones at that. The massacre was reported by Edward Shippen in a letter to John Penn, William's grandson and governor of Pennsylvania at the time. 1. Robert Edgar, a hired man to Captain Thomas McKee, living near the borough, acquainted me today that a, num- that a company of people from the frontier had killed and scalped most of the Indians at Conestoga Town early this morning. He said that he had his, his information from an Indian boy who had made his escape. Mr. Slough has been to this place and held a coroner's inquest on the corpses, being six in number. Bill Salk and some other Indians were gone toward Smith's ironworks to sell brooms. But where they are now we can't understand. And the Indians John Smith and Peggy, his wife and their child, and young Joe Hayes, were abroad last night too, and lodged at one Peter Swars, about two miles from hence. These last came here this afternoon. Who we acquainted with what happened to their friends and relations, and advise them to put themselves under our protection, which they readily agreed to, and they are now in our workhouse by themselves, where they are well provided with every necessity. Warrants are issued for the apprehending of the murderers, said to be upwards of fifty men, well armed and mounted. After the bloodbath at Conestoga, the Paxton boys turned around and returned home. But as Francis Parkman reports, they didn't necessarily avoid telling anyone what they'd done. As they urged their horses on through the snowdrifts, they were met by one Thomas Wright, who, struck by their appearances, stopped to converse with them. They freely told him what they had done, and upon his expressing surprise and horror, one of them demanded if he believed in the Bible, and if the scripture did not command that the heathen should be destroyed. Some of the gang stopped at the house of Robert Barber Jr. in Wrights Ferry and confronted him about why he and other Quakers in that town tolerated the Susquehannocks. Barber said they were an in- that they were an inoffensive tribe, and the gang members asked him what would happen if that tribe were to be killed. Barber replied that the murderers would be tracked down and punished, as would any other murderer. The gang questioned him on that and left. Some of Barber's children had seen bloody clubs and tomahawks on the Paxton boys' horses. It was said that Barber was one of those who first discovered what had happened at Conestoga. It seemed that Bill Salk, referred to in Shippen's letter, was the object of the gang's wrath. They believed that he had been in contact with some of the more hostile tribes, but there was no evidence of this, and it seems to have merely been an excuse offered later on. Soon after the murderers returned to Paxton, Reverend John Elder wrote a letter to John Penn, commenting on the events. He apparently figured he would be eventually implicated in what had taken place. On receiving intelligence the 13th instant that a number of persons were assembling on, the per- on purpose to go, c- go out to cut off the Indians at Conestoga, I, along with Mr. Forster, the neighboring magistrate, hurried off an express with a written message to that party, entreating and beseeching them to desist from such an undertaking, representing to them the cruelty of such an action, that it is barbarous and unchristian in its nature, and would be fatal in its consequences to themselves and their families, that private persons have no right to take the lives of any under the protection of the government, that they must, if they proceeded in that affair, lay their accounts to meet with a secret prosecution, and become liable even to capital punishment that they need not expect that the country would endeavor to conceal or screen them from punishment, but that they would be detected and given up to the resentment of the government. These things I urged in the warmest terms in order to prevail them, with them to drop the enterprise, but without any effect, they pushed on and have actually destroyed some of the Indians, though how many I have not yet been certainly informed. I nevertheless thought it my duty to give you, your honor, this timely notice that an action of this nature mayn't be imputed to these frontier settlements. For I know not of one person of prudence or judgment that has been anywise concerned in it, but has been done by some hot-headed, ill-advised persons, and especially by such I imagine as suffered much in their relations by the ravages committed in the late Indian War. Later, in another letter, written after the events in Lancaster described later, he stated, the storm, which had been so long gathering, has at length exploded. Had the government removed the Indians from Conestoga, as was frequently urged without success, this painful catastrophe might have been avoided. What could I do with men heed it to madness? All that I could do was done. I expostulated, but life and reason were set at defiance, and yet the men, in private life, were virtuous and respectable, not cruel, but mild and merciful. The time will arrive when each palliating circumstance will be calmly weighed. This deed, magnified into the blackest of crimes, shall be considered one of those youthful eboliations of wrath caused by momentary excitement to which human infirmity is subjected. Notice the tone of the letter. While Elder did, indeed, refer to the Conestoga Massacre as a painful catastrophe and detailed his own actions to avoid such an eventuality, He also manages to essentially blame the state government for the massacre and falls back on the but-they-were-good-people argument. He also in the first letter claims that the murderers were hot-headed, ill-advised persons and implies he has no idea who they were. But then in the second excerpt, it seems he did indeed know who they were and could vouch for their character. Elder's role in the actions of the Paxton boys is debated, Some feel that he was merely a Dr. Frankenstein whose creation took on its own agenda, while others feel that he may have played a stronger role and may have actually sent the gang to kill the Sesquahannocks at Conestoga. Needless to say, John Penn wasn't happy about the massacre. It seems that, at least in part, he he blamed John Elder, as you'd think he would. While he didn't take any direct action against him, He was stripped of his rank of colonel and command of the troops was granted to Asher Clayton. He also ordered Reverend Elder to do everything he could to quell further rebellions. In any event, as has been mentioned, the remaining 14 Conestogas were held at the jail in Lancaster, or more specifically in the workhouse adjacent to the jail, for safekeeping until after the Christmas holidays were done. Some people had said that the survivors should be moved to Province Island in Philadelphia, which is that area of South Philadelphia now dominated by the airport, which was inhabited by what what were called Moravian Indians, which were a group of about 200 Lenape who had converted to Christianity. On December 20th, Felix Donnelly reported to Edward Shippen that some of the Paxton boys had been seen at taverns in the area. A local attorney named James Bickham sent some men to investigate the rumors. Edward Shippen wrote, If on their return we find the story to be true, we should immediately alarm the borough and do the best we could to protect the Indians being killed. Although the remaining constables found no trace of Paxton boys in the area, Felix Donnelly, at least, believed the rumors, and David Henderson reported the jailer has armed himself and sent off his children. On December 27th, then, a band of between 50 and 100 Paxton boys, supposedly led by Lazarus Stewart, rode into Lancaster while most local officials were at a Christmas service at St. James Episcopal Church. As local resident William Henry wrote, I saw a number of people running down the street toward the jail, which enticed me and other lads to follow them. At about 60 or 80 yards from the jail, We met from 25 to 30 men, well-mounted on horses, and with rifles, tomahawks, and scalping knives, equipped for murder. I ran into the prison yard, and there, oh, what a hard sight presented itself to my view. Near the back door of the prison lay an old Indian and his woman and his women, particularly well-known and esteemed by the people of the town, on account of his placid and friendly conduct. His name was Will Sock, Across him and his native women lay two children, of about the age of three years, whose heads were split with a tomahawk, and their scalps all taken off. Towards the middle of the jail yard, along the west side of the wall, lay a stout Indian, whom I particularly noticed to have been shot in the breast. His legs were chopped with a tomahawk, his hands cut off, and finally a rifle ball discharged in his mouth, so that his head was blown to atoms, and his brains were splashed against, and yet hanging to the wall for three or four feet around. This man's hands and feet had also been chopped off with a tomahawk. In this manner lay the whole of them, men, women, and children, spread about the prison yard, shot, scalped, hacked, and cut to pieces. In the days following this second massacre, questions began. Some wondered why, with the killers of the inhabitants of Conestoga still on the loose, The guard of the jailhouse had not been heightened so as to additionally protect the survivors. Others also questioned why no one in Lancaster did anything to impede the advance of the gang. To which, to be fair, I could ask what exactly they think a handful of townsfolk were going to do against a band of 50 or more men, most of whom were presumably armed, but... Thomas F. Gordon articulated some of these complaints in 1829 when he wrote, It is not possible to exculpate the magistrates of the town from the charge of criminal negligence since it was in their power to have prevented this assassination or to, or to have arrested the perpetrators. Captain Robinson, with a company of Highlanders, on their way from Pittsburgh, being then at Lancaster, put himself in the way to receive the commands of the civil authority, which made no effort to use the force thus offered it. There was also much speculation early on about the fact that Felix Donnelly had been mysteriously absent from the prison grounds the day of the Lancaster Massacre. In the 1820s, John Reynolds, father of Civil War General John F. Reynolds, killed at the Battle of Gettysburg, wrote of the event, It is a little remarkable that three of the persons who were most deeply concerned in the murder of the Indians at Lancaster, William Hayes, the sheriff, and two persons by the names of Smith and Howard, met with an untimely fate. Hayes was killed in the sawmill, Smith drowned himself, and Howard fell on a knife, which he had in his hand, by accident, which caused his death. William Hayes Jr., the son of the sheriff, and Donnelly, the jailer, were also suspected of having been involved in the plot. After the jailhouse slaughter, the Paxton boys moved toward Philadelphia. They were aiming for Province Island, home of the Moravian Indians, Another group of those Christianized Lenape would be massacred near Gnadenhutten, Ohio, in 1782 by militiamen from western Pennsylvania. I'm not certain whether this can be connected to the Paxton Boys or not. The march on Philadelphia, though, was far from successful. As a major city and full of Quakers who in the past few weeks had denounced the Paxton Boys' massacres loudly, resistance was great. Military might was brought out to deter the marchers, and they made it only as far as Germantown before they were stopped. Few Philadelphia residents were more vehement in their condemnation of the Paxton Boys than Benjamin Franklin, who wrote a pamphlet called A Narrative of the Late Massacre in 1764. The quote in the introduction was from Franklin's pamphlet. He also wrote, If an Indian injures me, does it follow that I may revenge that injury on all Indians? It is well known that Indians are of different tribes, nations, and languages, as well as the white people. In Europe, if the French, who are white people, should injure the Dutch, are they to revenge it on the English because they too are white people? The only crime of these poor wretches seems to have been that they had a reddish-brown skin and black hair, and some people of that sort, it seems, had murdered some of our relations. If it, be, if it be right to kill men for such a reason, then, should any man with a freckled face and red hair kill a wife or child of mine, it would be right for me to revenge it by killing all the freckled freckled red-haired men, women, and children I could afterwards anywhere meet with. He also says of the Sesquihannocks, In short, it appears that they would have been safe in any part of the known world, except in the neighborhood of the Christian white savages of Pextang and Donegal. He swiftly received a reply from Thomas Barton, who anonymously penned a rebuttal of Franklin's account, entitled The Conduct of the Paxton Men Impartially Represented. In addition to direct attacks on Franklin himself, as well as the Quaker government, Barton sympathized with the actions of the Paxton boys, at least with its stated motives. He said of the Susquehannocks. Now I have been frequently informed for many years by sundry of their nearest neighbors in the Conestoga Manor that they were a drunken, debauched, insolent, quarrelsome crew, and that ever since the commencement of the war they have been a trouble and a terror to all around them. As for Will Sock and his brother, I am told there are undoubted proofs of their guilt and treachery. That they have threatened and drawn their knives on people who have refused to comply with their demands is a fact well known to hundreds. Of all the warrants that were issued for named individuals, only one was apprehended, though not convicted, on any charge. Lazarus Stewart, who had supposedly led the Paxton Boys in the Jailhouse Massacre. He again questioned the state government's relationship with native tribes, and wrote a lengthy statement on the matter, stating, Were the counties of Lancaster, York, Cumberland, Berks, and Northampton protected by government? Did not John Harris of Paxton ask advice of Colonel Crogan, and did not the colonel advise him to raise a company of scouters, and was this not confirmed by Benjamin Franklin? And yet, when Harris asked the assembly to pay for this scouting party, he was told that he might pay them himself. Did not the counties keep up those rangers to watch the motions of the Indians, and when a murder was committed by an Indian, a runner with the intelligence was sent to each scouting party? that the murderer or murderers might be punished. Did we not brave the summer's heat and the winter's cold, the savage tomahawk, while the inhabitants of Philadelphia County, Bucks and Chester, ate, drank, and were merry? If a white man kill an Indian, it is a murder far exceeding any crime upon record. If an Indian kill a white man, it is an act of an ignorant heathen. Alas, poor innocent, he is sent to friendly Indians that he might be made a Christian. Lazarus Stewart, ironically, died in 1778 at the Battle of Wyoming, ironically killed by Iroquois, allies of the British in the same region as the massacre of the Connecticut settlers the Paxton Rangers had discovered 15 years before. Although the jailhouse where the killing occurred is long gone, a bit of the wall and the door still exists. Today, the wall is a portion of the rear wall of the Fulton Opera House. Notorious as a Hornet location. Ironically, the ghosts reported in the Opera House seem to be the typical sorts of ghosts reported from theaters worldwide, and I'm not aware of any that draw from the extremely ghost-worthy events which took place in what is now the building's basement. And that's the end of this episode. A list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to our Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. We're also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast. And so, until next episode, this is Andrew signing off. like this one at straightupstrange.com.